I don't know. Do you read Time Magazine? Does anybody read that anymore? Um, there was an article in September about a guy named Brian Johnson. Did you catch this? Some of us know Brian Johnson's. It's not him. This guy's a centimillionaire, made all his money in Silicon Valley. And now his entire intent for his life is to disempower death. That's what he's doing. He's a freak. Uh, he takes uh, everything he does is designed to make himself biologically younger to the point where he will not die. That's what he's doing. Uh, he takes 111 pills a day, supplements. He eats food that's been processed and prepared in ways that you and I couldn't even hope to do. We don't have enough money. He sleeps in a hyperbaric chamber. He, chamber. he hooks himself up to all kinds of biotechnical, electrical feedback to learn when he should sleep and when he should not sleep. He exercises according to a very specific routine, certain exercises for certain amounts of time, measuring his oxygen intake, all this. This is his whole life to disempower death. Do you see the irony? Death completely rules his life. Does it not? He's thinking about it every single day. We're, we're going to talk about power or at least get started talking about power today. It's a, it's a complicated subject. Uh, it is everywhere. I don't know if you realize this, and, you, and I, I could guess that you're like me. You probably don't realize how much power is at play in every facet of life. And part of the problem with power is that we don't realize that. And we'll talk about that. It'll take a few weeks to work this through. Um, so it's everywhere. Power abuses are, are, are inevitable, in part because we don't know when it's happening. Um, in the hands of the immature or the unchecked, it's almost always abused or misused. Does that, does that make sense? When you have more power than what your character or your maturity can handle, it's going to be abused. That's why it is important for leaders to have character because leaders inherently have power. And if they're not mature, if they don't have character, they are going to misuse it. Jesus and Paul are constantly warning us about the susceptibility that we have to the powers of this world, to powers of uh, uh, even darkness within the world. And we would do well to heed them because I, I want to say I'm sorry uh, to tell you this, if you don't know, you are affected, you are affected by, even overwhelmed at times, by worldly powers. And at times, you and I both employ worldly power under spiritual cover. I'll, I'll explain a little bit more what I mean by that, but I'll say it again. We employ, let's say, power techniques to accomplish things that we think, that we really know God wants us to accomplish certain things, and, we, and what we know in this world is how to accomplish things through power. And so we think the Christian life, the Christian mission is to accomplish God's will using worldly power. We think that the answer to the Christian mission is to co-opt worldly power for God's purposes, but that's, we're going to find that's not the way God wants to get his mission done. 
We come across it in Ephesians, which we're studying for weeks and weeks. We're going to keep studying Ephesians for a while. Um, we call the series Ins, the Ins and Outs of Jesus or something within that space. Yeah, Be, largely because the, the letter to Paul is set up sort of that way. The first half of the letter says, explain who am I in Christ? What does that mean? We, we started to open that up last week. What does it mean to be in him? to be positionally, uh, eternally secure, to, to walk with Jesus, to participate in what God is doing in this world with eternal purposes. Like, we, what does it mean to be in him? And then we start talking about what does it look like when you're in, you're participating, you're part of, what does it look like when it comes out of you? And they, they overlap a little bit, but generally the, that's how the letter is set up. Before we get to the power part, it's important to read what Paul says and does before he gets there. Like the context is always very important. And I'm going to start in Ephesians 1:15. This is, uh, you know, what we looked at last week. The first 14 verses are, am I talking super fast? Gosh, I feel like I need to relax. <sighs> Golly, I don't know what's going on. I've been running, I feel like my head's racing this morning for some reason, so I need to just relax. Um, God, let's pray. God, can you, uh, speaking of power, like, could you do something about this? I would appreciate it. Amen. Gosh, that's a sincere prayer. I hope you know that. That's, that's, I just need his help. In verse 15, uh, we're, we're, we're coming out of the, the very first part, which is God, uh, Paul's uh, poem. He wrote a poem, really to describe what it means to be in him. And now he's shifting to a prayer. So we're, we're, we're listening essentially to God, to Paul pray here. Ephesians 1, verse 15 and 16. It says, for this reason, okay, for this reason, and he's referring to those first section, for, because you're chosen, because you're participating, because, we, because you are the people of God, participating, unified, everything. And ever since I heard about you, this church in Ephesus, and heard about you, your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, which this is another kind of quick descriptor of what it means to be in him, right? Faith in the Lord Jesus, love for all God's people. He says, I have not stopped giving thanks for you and remembering you in my prayers. And here's his prayer. He says, I keep asking, and that doesn't mean I'm sick and tired of having to ask this for you. It is an ongoing process. Paul knows he, he needs to keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. He's praying that God would give them the spirit, and you can translate to, to us, Paul's prayer is for the church. We're part of the church. Uh, the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Paul is saying essentially that we have so much to learn. There are much greater depths of God to be explored. When you think you have arrived, you have probably jettisoned yourself out of the space of being in him in a practical sense, in the way he wants us to live in this lifetime. There is a much richer understanding of God 
in your future as a believer. Most of us are familiar with the story, and we've talked about it, where Paul was literally shocked and, and sent to the ground by uh, the light of God opening his eyes to the stuff of Jesus. He, he suddenly one day saw Jesus, heard Jesus, talked to Jesus, and then understood Jesus in a way that he had never been able to comprehend, which also opened his eyes to see the history of faith and, and the Jewish uh, nation in a way he'd never seen it before. But he also saw, <laughs> saw that there was so much yet to be seen. Are, are you with me? His, he was blinded, blinded, and saw Jesus better than he ever did before. And he also saw that there was so much to be seen. And he's praying for the church. He's praying for me. And he's praying for you that we would, that, that God would give a spirit of wisdom and understanding and revelation. That we would see what we haven't seen. That God himself would reveal even more of himself to him. You may remember Paul wrote to the church in Corinth this, this line. He says, for, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So God's not still learning who we are. <laughs> he knows us completely, utterly. Live with that for a second, right? Remember that. He knows everything. The reverse is not true. We are always learning more and more about him. Um, Adam, Pastor Adam, um, my friend and uh, walking encyclopedia of information, reminded me that Plato's allegory, the cave, captures this same message. Those of you that have spent any time in philosophy 101 uh, or any of those methods, you, you, you understand this, but for the record, this is an allegory where these prisoners have been chained inside a cave for their entire lives. They face a blank wall, but behind them there's a pathway with a fire lit. And there's stuff going on along that pathway. People are carrying things, and they see the shadows of that life on the wall. They don't know any other reality. They can't turn around. They can't look. They're, they must face, they, they can only face this way. They can only see the shadows. And this is what they understand the reality of life to be. Shadows. There's an escape. One of the prisoners gets away. He's freed. He's seized a fire. The light hurts his eyes, right? He's confused by reality. He's led outside the cave into the sunlight. He's blinded. Gradually comes to see and understand the real world. He realizes that what he's seen was not, it was true, right? It's true, but it's not, it's not the full story. It's, a, it's an illusion in some ways of what is real. True reality is outside the cave. And as you might suspect, the freed prisoner goes back into the cave to free the others. And what do they do when he explains to them the real world? 
They mock him. They resist him. They find it completely inconceivable that there's a reality beyond the shadows on the wall. That's the world we live in, right? Do you see it? It's a good allegory. It's a good one. And God is saying, you see a lot of shadows. You see a, a, a bit of me. I've revealed myself over time. I've shown you the, the character of who I am through my son, Jesus, but there is so much more for you to learn. There are things to be known, understandings to uncover, truths to be found, depths of life that can only be plumbed by God. This is Paul's posture. He's praying that we would have the same posture, that we wouldn't be arrogant, that we would believe and know and lean into the reality that he can be known at a greater depth than what I do now. And then we come to the power part. This is verse 18. So he goes on praying. So first he's praying that they would be given insight. And then he prays that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened, which is similar, that your, your heart would be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, which is worth its own sermon series, the hope, so he's praying that our eyes would be enlightened and understand this hope. Does everybody understand the hope of the future perfectly well? Anybody? Anybody? <laughs> right? What is that? We have a similar of an idea. He said, I'm praying that you can understand even more deeply the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And here it is. Again, praying that we might know this, his incomparably great power for us who believe. Paul is praying that we would know the incomparably great power that God has for the believer, given the believer. So there's power involved in the Christian life. And then he describes it. The power, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Read that again. The power you believer have is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Can you describe for me <laughs> what words would you use to describe the power it takes to raise a man from the dead who's been dead three days? Are there words for that? Paul's praying that we would grow in our knowledge and understanding of the fact that there is a power within us or available to us that's been given to us that we don't fully understand, but we could understand it more, that is as the, is the same as. This is a, you could say the possession of the believer is a power as great as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Do you think about yourself that way? Use this uh, the next time you're in a small group setting with, at work or uh, socially, and there's a crowd breaker question, and it says, uh, yeah, before we start, let's just tell each other a little bit about, tell us a little bit about you. 
and it comes to you and you say, this is Mike, married, wonderful woman. I have two uh, boys, both married, and uh, I have a power within me that is the same as the power that God exerted to raise Jesus from the dead. And it's not like, it's not hyperbole. You're just saying it, but it's a, fact. It's, it's this, it's a fact, just like I'm Mike and I'm married and I have two boys and two wonderful girls that are married to them. And I have the same power that, uh, in me that raised Jesus from the dead. See how that goes. That'll be fun. Starts the right conversation. Most of us don't even feel powerful, period. I've never been quite strong enough, have you? Have you ever felt like, yeah, I'm, I'm as strong as I want to be? There's a couple of you in the room, I think you could say that. I know you, and if I were you, I would, I would like to be you, and you're strong. You have strength, but most of us think, I'm not, the, I'm not even the way I want to look, let alone have strength that I want to have. Anybody feel like they're as smart as they want to be? If you powerfully intellectual, intelligent, you feel powerfully socially, like with your, with your influence. How, how often do you think to yourself, I'm a powerful individual? But when we read this, if, you, if you're inclined to believe Scripture and, and, and trust Paul on some level to have been guided by God and these are words from God for us. If, you're, if, you're, if you lean that way, you immediately start to think and dream about power. I can tell you, for in 30-something years of pastoral ministry, a, a, a significant percentage, more than half, of people that are finding their way to church, into the Christian space, is because they couldn't find power anywhere else. Or they had failed. And in here's one last place where I, I might be accepted, I might be, I might be given a, a, a place of belonging, and I also might be given a responsibility, possibly a title, Something. This is the church sometimes for people is the last opportunity to be validated and to be powerful. I don't think anybody would say that, but there's a, there's a strong tendency to save spiritual space for last after we've tried to find our power or ourselves in some other way, and then we come here. But... We kind of are looking for the same kind of thing inside as we are outside. And oftentimes the church provides it. We, we'll talk about that. We, go, we can go sideways on this because we forget that there's a difference between worldly power and godly power. What I'm trying to say is it's very attractive, this idea that you can have power as a Christian. And we talk about it all the time. Tell me if you've heard any of these phrases before, if you've been a part of church in your life. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we are transformed. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. 
There is power in the name of Jesus. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave us his power. The word of God is alive and active and has the power to change lives. May the power of Christ rest on you. Prayer is the avenue through which God's power flows. Let's tap into the power of praise and worship. By his power, he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. God's love and power know no bounds. Rely not on your own strength, but on the power of God. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And most of these are scripture, not all, but most of these are scripture. It's, it's, it's all through scripture, and it's in our vernacular as a church. Power is a thing. But we go horribly off course when we fail to realize what I've been saying a little bit here and there. There's a big difference between the world's use of power and God's way of power. The world's use of power is out of phase with God's design for power. God's power and the powers of the world are, in most cases, antithetical. If, if we don't realize that, we, we go off course as a, as a church, as a body of believers. If we think our responsibility, our direction, our mission is to be accomplished in the ways that the world has taught us to accomplish things, we will miss what God is trying to do. And we, we tend to do that because we don't tend to realize there's a chasm between the two different. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth again. The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Uh, on in that same letter, 1 Corinthians, my message and my preaching, this is Paul talking, were not with wise and persuasive, read that powerful, words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. But Paul was a powerful speaker, but he's like, I am not, my preaching were not effective because of my powerful words, my powerful way. It was a demonstration of the Spirit's power, which he's saying is different. Paul, again, remembering what God said to him in his time, some, one of his times of of struggle and trying to know who God was. God says to him, and you remember this, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. You could read that this way. My power is made perfect in your non-power. My power is not made perfect in your power. And so Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness. I will boast all the more gladly about my lack of power in the worldly sense so that Christ's power may rest on me. What power is he talking about? He's talking about resurrection power. He's talking about the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. He's like, that's the power we want, not the world's power. There's a story in Acts chapter 8. I'm not going to put it up here. It's summarizing quite a bit. One of the apostles, Philip to be exact, uh, uh, came to Samaria and preached the gospel, and many people believed they were baptized, including Simon, this sorcerer. <laughs> a sorcerer got saved. 
a guy that you could pay money and he would like do magic stuff and help you. And when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. Peter and John prayed for the new believers to receive the Holy Spirit, to, to, to receive the power of God. And when they placed their hands on them, the believers received the Holy Spirit. It's lines like this in Scripture that uh, uh, there's many reasons that I love Scripture. This is one of them. Don't you expect there to be more there? And Paul's just saying what happened. <laughs> I love it. The, the new believers, they were going to pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit, and they placed their hands on them, and the believers received the Holy Spirit. All right. Didn't say really what happened right there, or how it happened, or whatever. Simon, seeing that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands of the apostles, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. What's Simon looking for here? Yeah, he wants to be powerful. He wants to co-opt this power of God for his own advantage. If he has this, he can do even more than he ever did before, which means he could make more money, he can be more popular, he can have more worldly power. Let me co-opt, can I buy it? Can I buy some of that? No. It's not a worldly thing you can't buy. And Peter says, he, says, he, he rebukes him. He says, may your money perish with you. This is early stage Peter. Right? Peter, Peter comes to know God in deeper and more wonderful ways as he grows. At this stage, Paul's probably praying for Peter right now going, oh, well, here he goes. Here he goes, may your money perish with you. Paul's like, you remember what we're doing here, Peter? Remember what we're about? <laughs> you know, you thought you could buy the gift of God with money? What's he saying? It's not of this world. God's power is not like the world's power. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. There's something about the power of God that is related to the heart, something that is internal, something that's going on spiritually. Peter rebuked him, this sorcerer. Simon, realizing his grave error, asked Peter and John to pray for him. If he stops there, it's perfect. This is what should happen when the Lord rebukes us, says, hey, you're looking at this entirely wrong. This is something much deeper than that. I pray that you would come to be this to be revealed to you over time, that you would have the spirit of wisdom. But let me just tell you, let Peter tell you, this is, this is wrong. And Simon says, I'm wrong. Can you pray for me? So that, what? What does it say? Do we have that one? So that the consequences of my failure won't hurt me, <laughs> won't happen right? He's like, he said, may your money perish with you. Simon says, hey, will you pray for me so that none of that happens? What's this showing? It's showing Simon's heart. He hasn't, he hasn't made a turn. He's still concerned about who? Himself. This is one of the simplest ways to identify the world's power versus God's power. The world's power divides, separates, oppresses, and in the end has been exerted 
For who? Self. The subtle uses of power or when it seems like it's for somebody else. Like the young man that's attracted to the young lady who's going into the store and he holds the door for her and compliments her on her hair. Seems like that's for her. He's got a whole different plan. The danger for the modern church, for us, lies in assimilating worldly power structures and diluting the unique countercultural power of the gospel. This has been going on forever. Christians have failed to see. The, the, the prayers of Paul, uh, in many cases, were not answered. People didn't discover who God was, what this power was truly about. And so they continued to use worldly power to try to advance Christian values. I think one of the best examples is when um, Constantine was converted. He was a powerful leader um, in the, around the Mediterranean um, eventually in Turkey, and he made Constantinople into basically a Christian city when he was converted. Well, what he did was he was trying to build a hierarchy in order to come against the powers of Rome. He was building the same kind of power in order to compete with the power. He was building worldly power to fight worldly power, but for Christian causes and to create and build, bring about Christian values. There was a mandate. It's called the Seven Mountains Mandate. Y'all remember this at all? The Seven Mountain Mandate from the early 70s. Some key leaders from that time, whom you would know, got together and set an agenda for Christianity. Really, they were trying to promulgate it throughout. And they identified these seven mountains or pillars of society, uh, religion, uh, family, education, government, law, media, the arts, and business. And there was a shared vision of the seven societal sectors that needed to be influenced, the areas where cultural change and influence happen. And by encouraging Christians to ascend in those leadership positions and basically take over those mountains for the, in the name of Jesus. To use those hierarchies, to use those power centers to press, you could say force, bring about Christian values. We go wrong in those directions. Worldly power is not the same as godly power. Godly power is not co-opting worldly power for godly purposes. And it's not just big, high-level things like Constantinople and Seven Mountains Mandate. It happens in church in subtle ways. Uh, through, for example, like selective scriptural emphasis. You know what I mean by that? Like when you teach certain things, 
because you want certain things to happen. And you don't teach other things because you don't like where that goes. So you pick and choose. And we emphasize certain things in Scripture over other things. Trying to control the views of the congregation by up playing some and down playing others. Exclusivity in ministry roles. We, we, we have some hierarchies, right? We have hierarchies in the church just in order to organize better. And sometimes those things get contorted to where the people at the top of the hierarchy are more powerful than the people at the bottom of the, of the hierarchy in, the, in the, the way things are being run. Completely wrong. But like I said before, when you have power, you are tempted to abuse power. You don't even always see it coming. So we work against that. I was just explaining to somebody the other day that, uh, you know, our board uh, of elders and directors, we put them at the top of the organization and they are responsible to make sure we stay on the right direction, that we're doing the right things with our dollars, that we are uh, discipling one another well. But you don't have to go through Pastor, you know, like Caitlin, uh, the youth director, and then through me and uh, to get to the elders. <laughs> you, don't have, you can go right to it. And God's world is flat. We're all following Jesus. We've got different responsibilities, but we, we work against this sort of natural hierarchical power. And you've probably been in churches where that was the case. Those higher up had much greater power. And sometimes you give people power, right? This is some of the worst things that can happen, right? Why is that person on the board? Why is that person an elder? Scripturally, there's only one reason, because of their character. But in the church, sometimes they're on that board because they have a lot of money. And you want somebody on your board that has a lot of money so they can help you do what we want to do. Well, that, that's not hard to see how that's not godly, right? Guilt-driven, incentivized giving, right? We don't, we don't do that. At least we try hard not to do that. Let's go, people. You know, everyone else is giving. What's up with you? Or you put a plaque up for the ones who gave the most. How wrong is that? It's motivating, though. Can you imagine if we did that? Just put a list up here and you could see where you were. If you just give another $200, you could bump up from 17 to 16. <laughs> Some churches isolate people from uh, seeing uh, what's going on elsewhere, discouraging congregants from exploring uh, certain teachings outside the church or understanding what's going on in the world around them or, or understanding what's going on. Some churches uh, downplay and even demonize other churches. Why would you do that? Bible-believing, gospel-centered church, the only reason is I got to make sure you know this is really the best place for you to be. I don't want you to go there. So, I, know, I just might make up something like, yeah, that pastor, he's okay, you know. It's like, once you get to know him, though. Okay, what have I done? 
That's a, that's a worldly power. That's what, that's what the world does. Demonizes the character in order for me to gain something. There's all sorts of ways. Overstepping personal boundaries, leaders in church that get involved in people's lives where they haven't been invited or it's not right in good conscience that they want to control that situation, right? <clears throat> the power of God isn't worldly power to be co-opted for spiritual ends. Um, well, what is it, Mike? I'm going to give you a couple things real quick before we finish up. And then we'll build this out. Jesus flips power dynamics on its head. The early Christians, against the backdrop of the Roman Empire, showcased an alternative, transformative way of life by embracing and living out the power they have in him. There's a couple things here, and we'll build these out, like I said later. First of all, we need to re remember that it's, it's a resurrection power. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that we have to be raised from the dead. So first, we need to think about it being the power that moved us from dead in our sins to alive in Christ. Maybe look at it this way. It takes as much power to raise you as it did to raise Jesus. You raise Jesus from the dead, it takes the same power to raise you spiritually. It's not something that the world can do. It's not something that you can do. You can't turn yourself into a person that is holy and right before God. You cannot forgive yourself so that he will forgive you. You cannot. It takes God to bring new life to you from an eternal perspective and to put it in you in order to live in this life. You are a, you're a heavy lift. And it has to go on every single day. Right, this is the thing. On a daily basis, are we realizing that God, it takes God to raise me to a life, to empower me to live in some way different than the world lives? That that takes, that takes an incredible amount of power. This is our, this is our pattern, the Jesus pattern subject to unjust accusation, right? Like Jesus was accused of things he didn't do and he was penalized to death for things that he didn't do and he had the power to stop it. And he didn't. He laid down his power, he laid down his life in order to engage this world differently than the world. Have you ever let somebody else win other than a kid when you could win? Have you ever forgiven somebody who didn't deserve to be forgiven? That takes the power similar to raising Jesus from the dead. You cannot do it on your own. That has to be alive and well in you. So every single day, we start with Jesus. Paul's prayer is that you would have the spirit of wisdom and knowledge and that you would know him. The power is seen in the utter inability to stop us from willingly laying down our lives to, to, to lose when we can win in order to usher in a different power. 
Secondly, you, you need to always remember that we are raised, that we can live like Jesus, that there is a victory, that I do have that eternal hope. And he says it's the same power, he means it's the same power. Takes the same. Essentially, what we need to do in order to find our way through this, a friend of mine says the Christian life is to immerse and improvise. Immerse and improvise. Pour yourself into the scriptures. Lead yourself to Jesus. Learn from him every day and then give it your best shot because life is different. It's confusing. It's unique for each of us. Think about Jesus every day. Learn from God every day. Know him more every day. Be on mission every day in simple ways. There's a couple examples that we use regularly to break away from the powers of this world. We already did one. is communion. That's an immersion of the things of Jesus. Uh, John Praney did a beautiful job setting that up and saying just, we just come into that space of forgiveness freely knowing there's nothing we can do about it. It's all God. The playing field is level around the communion table. No one gets precedence. We're all the same. We're all the same. It sucks the power right out of the world. It's like we're all the same. It doesn't mean the president or the, the, the ditch digger come to the communion table the same. Eating in general does that. Eating is a deeply Christian act of leveling the playing field in unity. We all die if we don't eat. We don't normally say that when we sit down to eat, but that's what we're doing together. We're all the same, no matter how powerful you are. Increasingly know and embrace Jesus' unique approach to power and make continuous attempts in a variety of unique circumstances to reflect the heart of God. Think of one person you can forgive in a way that does uh, not ensure your future safety from them. Turn the other cheek. Lay down the ability to choose the path that brings immediate gratification. That's a tough one. We have the power to gratify ourselves in all sorts of ways. And we do that and we miss the gratifications of Jesus and his power. Obey the simple commands that you don't like. See what God does. Even our basket, which we're going to pass. I don't think we passed that till now, right? We're going to throw that out soon. You guys can start them. Send that around. I'm going to talk about it while you do. You know what to do with that basket, right? You just put money in there. No, that's not what you do. You're saying to God, I trust you. You trust, I trust you with my resource. I trust you with my time. I trust you with my talent. I trust you with my tithe. Back in the day, people gave to the Lord out of what they needed, out of what they needed. They needed it. They gave away their first fruits. This is going to make them survive. <laughs> and they gave it away. We generally give out of what we don't need. Most of us have a little extra. Not all. We don't give. And sometimes we don't even do that. Do you ever think about why you have more than you need in the first place? Like, why do we have more than we need? This is a good question. Why do I have more than I need? Because I might need it in the future. 
right? I have more than I need because I might need it later. But God says, you don't have to worry about that. I will provide for you. I'll provide for you. You will not be in need. So we ask the question again, why do I, why, why do I have more than I need? I have more than I need because at its root, I don't really trust God to provide later. Are you, with, are you with me? So we use the power that we have to secure a future that we want. So when you open your hands and put something in the basket, I want you to celebrate. I want you to go, you know, God, I want you to, I want you to honor God and say, I am taking a step here to depower myself and offer you the ability to work through me. When you give your time, when you give your tithe, when you give your talents, you're saying to yourself and to God, I'm giving away my power in order to understand you on a deeper level. Let me encourage you, church, as we look at this subject, to examine your own heart. It's a tough one. Immerse, immerse yourself in the resurrection story, the radical upside-downness of it all. Learn from him. Learn from the apostles. Read the scriptures. And get out there and try and see God show up in ways that are like the resurrection power. See if your life shapes and forms in a different way, and if by living life in a way that is antithetically powerful to the world, see if God's promises come true, that that life that raised Jesus from the dead, that transfers into the world and into other people's lives. It's a beautiful thing. Immerse and give it a go. God, thank you for your servants, Paul, Peter, their words, your promises. Uh, God, we heed the prayer, lean into knowing you. We ask for your spirit to give us insight, to teach us about you and about power, about how we misuse it and leverage it. Teach us how to live in your power. In Jesus' name, amen.